and that we would rejoice in you. Lord, we love you. Speak now as we open your word together. Amen. Open your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is the second time we've gone through this passage, 13 through 17. And I told you last week we're going to go slowly. As we go through this passage, we're going to go slow and we're going to kind of pick some things out as we go. There's a lot to be seen in these verses. So let's dive right in by reading chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So just a reminder of where we are. In chapter 2, he begins by talking about, um, he begins by discussing false letters that have been sent to the Thessalonians to them to make them uneasy. People who were saying Jesus was not going to come back or that Jesus had already come back and they missed it. There's all kinds of things that they have been told that have made them very nervous. And we see that back in verse uh, 1 and 2 here. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So this is the idea. He's, he's addressing this false teaching that has drifted into the congregation and is dividing people and is making people uneasy and it's making people nervous and they don't know what to do with it. So Paul says, how do we address this anxiety about the end? about what's going to happen. How do, we, how do we take care of this? What do we do to kind of handle this mess? And then he, we went through the last several weeks. Um, first, he, he says, how do we handle this? So how do we handle, what do we do when there's deceit around us and people are giving us false information? And what do we do when we're shaken and we're nervous? And he says, do not be shaken in mind or alarmed. Do not, that's the first thing. Don't be shaken in mind or alarmed. Remember that you don't serve a God of confusion. You serve a God who knows what's happening. He's involved. He's active. And you don't need to be alarmed because he's got everything under control. He is God and he's in charge of all things. And then the last couple weeks we've gone through uh, this idea that you need to be aware of what will come. And he talks about the rebellion and the lawless one. And he talks about how there's going to be the rebellion. There is already a rebellion, and rebellion is already, the mystery rebellion is already growing, but 
we know that there will be the rebellion and there will be the lawless one and Jesus will come and smash both and crush both the rebellion and the lawless one. There will be, uh, they will be defeated by Christ. Those who are saved, uh, those who are not saved rather, those who do not believe, who reject the truth and seek pleasure and unrighteousness, they will meet their end. They will meet their end there. And then we need to remember that all the bad things that go on, all the trouble things that go on, do not indicate that Jesus is somehow distant or not active, but rather he will respond and he is responding. And right now we are in a season of grace where he allows things to go on and move forward, but he is going to respond. And there's a certainty there that he's going to. And not only is there certainty there that he's going to, but the fact that there is rebellion against him, according to Paul, the fact that there is rebellion against him and that there are people who have a strong delusion is actually evidence that God is working. That God is working. And then finally, remember your salvation in election, which we talked about last week. If the word election, predestination, or chosen bothers you, there was we had a list that we passed out last week of those words. You can look them up in Scripture and find where they're used and how they're used so you're not afraid of those terms. Um, they're just terms that are used in the Bible, so you should get used to them. Uh, so we want to, to encourage you to seek those. And if you want that list, I can send it to you this week. So that's all review. That's where we are. And we come to verse 14 of chapter 2. But in order to read verse 14, you really got to read 13 through 17 together. And that's why we read those together. So uh, we see here this phrase we saw last week. But we ought always to give thanks to you. It's fitting to thank God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. We talked about what it meant to be beloved by the Lord. Uh, because God chose you as His first, as the first fruits or uh, before beforehand uh, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So let's remember that salvation is twofold picture of one thing: sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Those are saying they're both pointing to salvation. It's two ways of saying how you were saved, or two parts. To salvation, that the Spirit sanctifies you. We call this the doctrine of regeneration. And that you believed the truth, that you have a faith, a belief, a faith in truth, that you delight in truth. Now, verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel. Let's pause there. The this that he is referring to grammatically connects back to salvation. Salvation. So to this salvation, to sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to those things, those two things, He called you. Your calling intentionally, your salvation was to those two things. He called you to salvation. So the first part of the salvation that He called you to is sanctification by the truth. And this is replete all through Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, it says, Be holy in all your conduct. And then it goes on to say, As God has said, as the Lord has said, you are to be holy or you shall be holy as I am holy. He quotes the Old Testament saying, If you're my people, you're going to be holy. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be different. You're not going to behave like the world. 
You're going to be holy. You're going to be different. The things that the world takes pleasure in or the things that the, the media, everybody tells you to take pleasure in. The wickedness that the world tells you to take pleasure in, which, as you well know, is not pleasurable, but leads to depression, anxiety, and loss of joy. So that stuff that you're told to take pleasure in, Peter tells you, you are to be holy. You are to be separate. You're to be different. You're supposed to look different from the world because your God is different. You will be holy because He is holy. You will be changed because He is holy. So you are holy and different. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So get the gravity of that statement. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, for for righteousness, for holiness, to be set apart from the world, without which... No one will see the Lord. When we become believers in Christ Jesus, this is what happens. Well, let's back up. When we were born, we were born into a world that is sinful. We ourselves were sinful. We are sinful. And we uh, were born into this world with what's called original sin. So everybody gets this. And in the garden, what happened was there was a fracturing of the relationship between humanity and God. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, remember, it's not just Eve's fault. It's Adam gets blamed for it, not Eve. Paul is like, it's Adam's fault. So she eats the fruit, hands it to her husband who's standing right there, and he eats the fruit too. They both willfully rebel against God and they fracture the relationship with God. What's the next thing they do? They go hide in a garden and make for themselves loincloths. Right? They try to cover themselves. The Bible says they make coverings for themselves. And the picture here is like they take loincloths and like speedos, and they run and hide in bushes because they know that they're not covered and now they're naked and ashamed right they know that they've wronged god they know they've broken his law they know that there's a fracturing there and they go and hide in the bushes and then god comes and says adam where are you and it's the most intense and difficult question in the bible because god knows exactly where adam is he knows exactly what's happened so why did he ask the question he asked the question to illustrate a point that Adam is now separate from god and you can imagine adam years down the road plowing a field And hearing that echo in his brain. And just the crushing weight of, I lost what I had. And what does God do? God comes to him. He gives him. These are the consequences. He tells him the curse. This is what's what's happened. This is what's happened now that this has happened. The, The earth is cursed. You are cursed. The earth is cursed. And everything's fractured. And at first we think it's just God and man that's fractured. God then covers them with robes because their own righteousness can't cover them. So he gives them robes. And the Hebrew word is like full length robes to cover them. So God clothes them, which is a picture of us being clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And then the very next, and then, then they have to leave the garden. And the very next chapter, we're thinking the fracture between man and God is broken. The very next chapter, we see that this, this is broken too. The fracture between us, man to man. Abel and Cain get into it, and Cain kills Abel. So you have the first murder. This, this is the fracture. All of a sudden, there is pain, there is torment. This is a great time for babies to cry. Just think about it. This is a great time. Like, 
fracture and murder and destruction and our relationships with each other are all broken. And there's only one way to heal both the vertical and the horizontal relationships and that's by trusting in Jesus Christ and living like Him. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, if you are a believer, you are to strive with peace for everyone and for holiness. Without which, no one will see the Lord. You need peace. You need holiness to see the Lord. And that can only come through trusting Jesus Christ and following Him. That can only come that way. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 4, 4 through 9, you know this passage well. It says, Rejoice in all things. Be reasonable. Set your mind on the things that are above. Whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is commendable, whatever is worthy of praise. Set your mind on these things. That passage is beautiful, but it's telling you, you are to be holy and set apart. You were saved to be holy. This is a common theme in Scripture. You were not saved to stay where you are. You were saved to become who you are supposed to be. Holy, set apart, unique individual that God has created specifically with your unique proclivities and things for the kingdom and the glory of God. You were made to be holy because he knows who you are. He made you. He knows your identity. He's the one who understands who you are supposed to be. Is it any wonder that a world that has rejected Christ cannot figure out who they are? Is it any wonder that the world who has rejected Christ goes, I don't feel like I am this. It's, it's not surprising. We ought to have pity for them. They are broken. And they don't even know it. They think they're fixing themselves. And they're just spiraling down into more and more depression and anxiety and distance and distance from the Lord who will be the only cure to any of those things. Who will be the only source of life. So we've got, you were called to sanctification. That's one thing you were called to. The second thing that you were called to is a belief in the truth or a love for the truth. What he says back in uh, 2 Thessalonians when in chapter 2 earlier when he said that the wicked are those who do not welcome the truth. They do not welcome a love for the truth is the way it's written. They do not welcome a love for the truth. They, they reject truth. We are the opposite of that. We are people who embrace truth, who tackle truth. Christians should never be afraid of knowledge. We shouldn't. We should never be afraid of knowledge. We should always... Be able to discern truth. And when we see truth, we should be able to stand and identify it and know it. And the way that you know it, the way that you know it is through the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We set our hearts on the Word of God. Whatever is right, just, honorable, commendable, beautiful, lovely. We set our minds on those things. And then as we saturate ourselves with the Word of God, we begin to distinguish the truth in the world around us. And that's why Christians can look at things and go, no, that's wrong and that's right. I would argue that other people can do that too. They can look and go, that's wrong and that's right, but they can't tell you why it's wrong and right. We can look at them and go, there is a God who is right, who has made absolute truth. There is reality beyond myself. So we believe in the truth. 
And the Thessalonians in particular believed the truth. Look back at verse 13. They received the word. I'm sorry, in chapter, chapter 1. Uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the Thessalonians believed the word of God. They received from Paul and from Timothy and from Silas. They received the word of God. They believed it and they began to live as such. That's what we saw in Acts. That's what we see all through these letters. They began to believe it and it transformed who they are and it transformed how they live. And they lived a quiet and peaceful life away from the eyes. They weren't they weren't having big rallies. They weren't having massive events. They weren't shutting down marketplaces. They were just simply living like Christians. And their living like Christians brought them persecution. And it brought them quiet persecution. It brought them affliction. It brought them mobs of people ticked at them. It brought them angry and loud persecution. It brought them mobs of people angry at them, dragging the leader of their church out in front of the Roman uh, procurates and the, the Roman governors and, and dragging them out with accusations. It brought them taxation. Extra taxes. They wanted to be faithful Christians. So what does the Roman do? Well, you have to pay us in order to do this. We want a security from you, is what it says in Acts. The guy asks them for a security. Basically a financial bribe to keep them, to let them worship in the privacy of their own home. These are brothers and sisters who experienced real persecution that was both quiet and loud. They experienced real valid persecutions, but when they received the word, they received it, as we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, with much affliction and persecution, with the joy of the Spirit coming through it. Even in the face of such overwhelming persecution, they still had joy in the Spirit. This is beautiful and powerful, they received the word of God and it worked. It was at work in those who believe. Good theology changes who you are. Good theology changes the way you live. When you learn the truth about Jesus Christ, it ought to change who you are and how you behave. Bad theology is a waste of your time. It gives you a lot of head knowledge, but you're still an awful person. Good theology changes your life. That's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. I can have all these things, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I don't have, I don't have love, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You've heard a lot of Christians in the world that are resounding gongs and clanging cymbals, and we pray for them that they would stop being a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal, and they would start to love other people like they're supposed to. Because when you believe the truth, you feast on the truth, and you live in the truth, and it changes who you are. When, you're, when you encounter something in Scripture that is true, that says something about you, you change the way you live because it's true, and you believe it, and it is where you find your joy. So he says here in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. He called to them, the call to holiness came through the gospel. They heard and were convicted and changed. Flip back over to 1 Thessalonians just for a second and read verses 3 through 10. 
Yeah, First Thessalonians chapter 1. Sorry. Thanks. Verses 3 through 10. Let's look at this again. Remembering, so they're praying for them. Paul says, we pray for you constantly. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor, of love and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus. So they believe, so they have a work of love, a labor of love. They have this, this work that they are doing, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness and hope. And for we know, brothers, loved by God, again, loved by God, chosen, that he's chosen you because, and this is how they know, because when the gospel came, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith and in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These brothers and sisters received the gospel. They worked they worked in it. It was evident in the way that they lived. They began immediately when they received the gospel, began to live differently. They turned from idols. They turned from wickedness. They began to live righteously, to labor and love, to give to the believers around them, to provide for each other and to take care of one another. They began to live entirely differently. So great was their reception and their kindness to Paul and Silas and Timothy that Paul and Silas and Timothy started hearing reports about how the Thessalonians received Paul and Silas and Timothy without saying anything to the people, without testifying to it. You know how great that is? If you show up at somebody's house and the hospitality is so great that somebody disconnected begins to talk about how great the hospitality that you gave to that person was, that's crazy. That's a, an amazing testimony. Oh, that we would be that kind of people. That people go, you know, I don't know anybody from Sovereign Grace Fellowship, but man, that church loves people. Like, they're awesome. They love the Word of God. They love people. They pray like crazy. They are, they're wild. Oh, that we would have that kind of reputation. Oh, that that would be a, a descriptor of who we are. The gospel changes us. And belief is validated by effort. Belief is validated by effort. Not because your effort proves, not because your effort makes you believe, but because your effort proves your belief. The gospel is effectual when it is believed. It is changing when it, when it is truly believed. Show me that you believe by what you say. I will show you that I believe by what I do. James. Show me that you believe by what you say. I will show you what I believe by what I do. That's 
who we are. The gospel is further effectual when it is believed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 through 24, it says this, For Jews demand signs and Gentiles seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So there's, there's what we preach, stumbling block and folly. <laughs> it's great. Right? <laughs> stumbling block and folly. The Jews seek signs, Gentiles want wisdom. They want philosophy and or the Greeks want philosophy. Jews seek science. Greeks want philosophy. And then he says, but we preach a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But then here's the difference. But to those who are called, we're, remember, we're, we're doing the word called here in chapter two of Thessalonians. This is those who are called, those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that which was a stumbling block becomes the power of God. And that which was folly becomes the wisdom of God. So when the gospel is received, that which becomes that which was stumbling block and folly is now power and wisdom. That's how that changes in the life of a believer. If you want evidence of this, I want you to think just for a moment about the philosophy of existence. This, or rather, the philosophy of reality. If this is too much heady stuff for you, just pause for a minute and I'll come back around. The, there's a concept in today's world in philosophy called, uh, that, that is, what is the reality of existence? Like, things don't exist, the, and the idea is that things don't exist if we're not there, right? A tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it. it did it really make a sound? That's the question, right? Um, if an apple, if you don't see a red apple is it actually red? If you're not actually seeing it and perceiving it, is it actually red? So the world goes, oh, these are deep questions. These are deep questions. And no, they are not. They are not deep questions. They are simple questions. Yes, the apple is still red. Yes, a tree still makes sound. Don't be ridiculous. Things exist apart from you. But understand what they're arguing. Understand what they're getting at. It's insidious and it's very dark. What they're getting at is the idea that nothing exists apart from my perceptions. I am the center of the universe. That's what they're getting at. And if I am the center of the universe, and you are the center of the universe, then everybody's universe is relative to where we are. So there is no absolute truth. Follow that to its logical end. I can do, be, say whatever I want. It has no bearing on you, because all that matters is your perception. And your perceptions are false compared to my perceptions because my perceptions are the ones that are in me and therefore I'm the only one that's right. But you can be right too because it's all relative. That is ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous. If a tree falls in the woods, yes, it makes a sound because the tree exists apart from you. And how do you know it exists apart from you? Because it fell in the woods. The very question begs the answer. I wasn't there when it fell, but it did fall because the question can't exist without, without the tree falling. So the tree was there and the tree did fall, but does it make a sound? Because I didn't hear it. So if I didn't perceive the tree as making a sound, you've already told me that there's two things in the story that you didn't perceive from the, from the get-go. The tree existed, the tree fell, therefore the tree makes a sound. Yes, it's ridiculous to say that it doesn't exist apart from you. Same thing with the apple. The idea is that if you, don't if you don't look at the apple and see red in the apple, and you don't see it as red, you don't, you don't recognize it as red, or you 
see a red apple and then you close your eyes and turn your head away, that apple ceases to exist until you look at it again. That's the argument. No. You know how we know this? Somebody picks up that apple and throws it at your head, it's going to hit it. You didn't have to see it coming. You don't have to see it for it to exist. You don't have to see it for it to be red. It exists apart from you. The folly, that statement, that there is absolute truth, is folly to the Gentiles. The world looks at you and goes, absolute truth is just, oh, you're so uneducated. You're so, you're so you don't understand. Yes, we do. Don't let the world tell you you don't understand. You have the wisdom of God, which embraces things like absolute truth and reality. Now, I'm, I'm using those two examples. I want you to understand there are books written by very smart doctors who will literally say in the book, when I cease to look at a red apple, it ceases to be red until I look upon it again. Folly. Folly. It's folly to them, but we have the wisdom of God. When we see the gospel, folly becomes wisdom. Stumbling block becomes power. He called you to salvation. He called you to this. He called you to, he called you to the wisdom of God. He called you to the power of God. You were called through the gospel to these things. And so what's the answer to a world that denies truth and reality? What's the answer? The answer is not to argue philosophically with them. They're trapped in folly. Their minds are darkened. Their eyes are closed. You have to open them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only the Spirit can do that. So what's our tact? We pray that the Spirit would move in the hearts of people to open them. And then we preach and speak and live the truth of the gospel and love with reckless abandon so that people would see the love of Jesus Christ, their minds would be opened, and they would begin to say, no, that wall really does exist, even if my eyes are closed. We would say that we would trust in those things because God is real. So you were called first to the you're called first to those to salvation through the gospel. Look at the next half of verse 14. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in, grammatically, this is a weird statement. It, it probably reads closer to, to this. To this he called you through our gospel to the obtaining or possession of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, He's calling you both to the salvation and to the obtaining of glory. To the obtaining of glory. Now, just before we go any further, I want to remind you of the definition of glory. Glory is reality. Glory is reality or uh, the picture of that which is real. And so, and I've said this a million times before, the glory of a frog is that it's slimy, wet, and hops. The glory of man is what you see right here. This is the glory of man, glorious, right? This is the glory of man. The glory of a tree is its tall, strong, green leaves. Like that's the glory of a tree. The glory of God is that he is God. He is God in total 
glory is an accurate representation of reality, of what something is, the, the very essence of something. So you were called to the possession or to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Romans chapter 8. We read this this morning. You can flip it on your bulletin. Chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that those who love God, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, there's that word again, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So get that. He's, he's conforming you to the image of his son. That's sanctification right there. That's the first part of salvation. Sanctification by the spirit. So the conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, looking like Jesus, being brothers with him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Is that word again? And those whom he called, again, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified has been part of the calling from the beginning. That you would be revealed as who you are supposed to be. That your identity would be entirely found in Jesus Christ is part of the calling of salvation. You are sanctified, you are justified, you are sanctified, and you are glorified. This has always been part of salvation, that you would be obtaining the glory of Jesus Christ. You look more and more like him, and you become more and more like who he is. Oh, what a powerful Christian that looks like Jesus. That we would be glorified, that we would obtain the glory of Jesus. You are called to the obtaining of this glory. Consider the scripture, consider the scriptural urges that we have in, in the Bible, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord. You are a holy, in 1 Peter, you are a holy priesthood set apart for his purposes. You are dearly loved children, so therefore imitate God as his dearly loved children in Ephesians. As you are all, you are holy as he is holy. You are to imitate Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is pursuing the glory of who Jesus is. You are to be different and have glory. You are the revelation of Jesus Christ on this earth. He has, for some reason, chosen to reveal himself to the world through the church, through Christians. In fact, we read it or I mentioned it earlier in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has seen God. And then there's this contrastive, contrastive statement. So you can translate it, but if, or if. Uh, so no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or manifested in us. His love is made perfect or manifested or brought out in us. When we love one another, that's why it's such an awful thing when Christians are divided and don't love one another and don't struggle with one another and don't engage in heavy discussion over things and, don't, and are unwilling to listen to one another. This is why it is so tragic because the world will know you by how you love 
one another. John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 tells us that you are to be his witnesses. We are to be his witnesses to the world around us. And this isn't a new concept. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, it says, You are my witnesses. My people are my witnesses to the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Just grab those three statements and rejoice in them. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God has taken you and made you those things. Just rejoice in that for a second. And then he goes on and says, You are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You are children of the light. And just like the stars were given to shine at night, the greater light for the day, the lesser light for the night, in Genesis chapter 1, so Jesus says of you, the day is with you, the light, I am the light of the world, and I am with you while it is still day, but soon it will be night. Guess whose turn it is? Now you get to reflect Jesus. Now you get to be the light in the sky. And you are the lesser light pointing to the greater light of Jesus Christ. God wrote this stuff in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, this is testified to that you are to stand as lights in the world in the night until he returns. We are further empowered by the Holy Spirit to obtain this glory. In John 15, verse 26 through 27, it says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he says to his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to live in you. He's going to testify of me. He's going to speak through you to the world. And you will bear witness. You are called both to salvation and to glorious living like Jesus. Or another way to put it, as he does in this text, obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are to look like him, to be like him, to walk like him, to do things the way he does. Oh, Christian, you are not on defense. You are not on defense. The adversary is not winning. The enemy is not progressing. He is desperately clawing himself into a pit. You are on offense. Sin does not have dominion over you anymore. You've been made holy in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, all that stuff is gone. You are a new creation. You have been made new and you have been empowered to walk in holiness and righteousness and goodness and love. And nothing, nothing can overcome it. Nothing can have victory over you. You are not on defense. Let's look very briefly at verses 15 through 17, which we're going to cover again. I told you we're going slow. We just did verse 14 this week, but let's do 15 through 17 real quick. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us, 
us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. You are to stand firm and to hold fast to what you have been taught because you are loved. You have been given uh, eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And God himself will comfort and establish your heart. So you are to stand firm. In light of what we read this morning, in light of verse 14, that you've been called to salvation and to the obtaining of glory. I hope you've got a good understanding of what those two things mean now. You've, you've been called to that. In light of that, we'll talk about these things more detail next week. But you are to stand firm and to hold fast to what you've been taught. You are to stand firm against the world and hold fast to what you've been taught. Don't let the world tell you the apple is not red. Don't let the world tell you that everything is relative. It's not. Don't let the world tell you that there's more joy in unrighteousness than there is in seeking the truth. There's not. Hold fast to the truth. Stand firm to the truth. Hold fast to what you've been taught because you are loved by God and He has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And He will. He will press into Him. He will comfort your heart and He will establish you in the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would, you would show us who you are as you have in your word, that we would rejoice in your spirit, that though we have tr- trouble and difficulty, that you would be delighted by us as we are delighted in you. We love you, and we trust you in all things. Amen. As we come to a time of communion together, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus who has trusted in Him for salvation, you are welcome to partake with us. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you're uncertain or you're not a believer, just let this pass. But before we do, we want to admonish you and encourage you to examine yourself and make sure that you take this in a worthy manner.